From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Welcome to Needle Exchange, conversations on the art of thread. Kaz Holmes is one of the UK's favourite textile artists, a respected teacher and author of numerous embroidered art books. Her work often uses found objects and has an alchemical philosophy, where the creativity is discovered at the edge of uncertainty. Kaz and I have a terrific conversation about the fearlessness of surrendering to artistic flow, how to be resilient when life throws curveballs at you, and the value in paying attention to the everyday. You can find out more about Kaz via her website and get her books using the links in the show notes. If you enjoy the show, tell your fellow creators and if you want to leave a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be fantastic. Enjoy the show. Yeah, yeah, let's start with that because this is the interesting thing. I was trying to ascertain with you how deliberate your work is given the fact that you like to... I'm almost like going in with my entire thesis straight away here. You, you use it as a form of documentary, but you also allow the objects that you find to dictate what you make. So it's not entirely, you're not entirely the director. It's like you're a co-director. Absolutely. I like that. that. Yeah, I'm a co-director of, of the material. So there's something in the material that triggers me. The only true thing about the whole process is that None of the materials I use, you know, the base materials, even the even the threads have been purchased. And most now in the last 20 years have been given. I haven't I haven't gone out and found them in charity shops either. Right. Yeah. Or collect or collected on my travels. So that's really what, what, what I do. You know, I kind of retrieve these objects from hand to hand 
And in the passing of them, I realised that they, well, I've, I've come to identify that they have a history and it's up to me to uncover that history. And often that history might be in partnership with the person who's given it to me. Unknowingly, they, 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 they might have said, I've got a few old pieces of tablecloth. And I always wonder why, why who, who did it belong to? So there's a mystery there. And, um, but there's also a commonality because we all have these things somewhere hidden yeah. away. Yeah. So are you, I was thinking it's almost like, it's like you're a ghostwriter. You know, you get those situations where someone wants to write a book, but they're not that great at writing. So they imply somebody else to help them get it out of their system. Yours is obviously they're giving the work to you to make something with, but in a way it's almost like they're going, hi, can you interpret this for us? Or uh, No, no. I, I, I think that would mostly happen with commissions. Right. People yeah. give me materials. So I'm doing a personal commission and I'll ask them, to maybe send me some information about what they were interested in or who the commission is for or what it's about. So I'd say that's more ghostwriting, but I'm left still left to my own devices. So I don't know, maybe I'm the devil writer. Do you, <laughs> this is a theme. She's a very respectable lady, Kath Holmes. No, <laughs> no, um, based on what I've been experiencing in the last two years, there's somebody up there not doing me any good, but no. <laughs> um I, I I kind of think there's a it's a doubt dialogue because I think all for me all cloth the minute you have it in your hand I mean you probably feel this even with even newly purchased cloth but your fingers are your for me my third eye right in fact I've only got one eye that's working it's my second eye basically right <laughs> but, right you know um the, the, my the, for most you know I always think that in the in the hands of a textile artist. The thing that differentiates me more from a painter is the amount of times my hand is on the cloth rather than distance from it from a brush. And mm. that feeling that the cloth gives as it passes through my hands, it, it's like uncovering it. You gradually uncover the story. So it's still my story to tell. It's more like a news reporter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yes. A soulful news reporter. I'm trying to uncover its story and what it means to me and, and where it has a connection to my experiences and what I'm going through. So I would say it's a meeting point. The, the cloth pushes what my own thoughts might be in various directions according to what, how I respond to it. And, the, and all of the fatalities that happen along the way with the bits of cloth, you know, things that go, don't go right. And I kind of engage with that as a part of the process. It feels very brave. It feels like you must surrender a lot in the process because, you know, some people will go, I'm going to make this thing. This is the way it's going to look. And obviously there's always a bit of alchemy, whereas you're very much at the alchemical scale of things, aren't you? Yeah, I don't have a clear, I can't have a line of inquiry. I mean, my surname's Holmes. I kind of think about that idea <laughs> as a line. Yeah, make, I, I often use that corny exchange when I'm I've teaching. Got a pipe. But I, yeah, but <laughs> it's more like a line of inquiry rather than, I am going to make it's I'm what am I interested in and how am I going to uncover that in, in what I make and what and it, it kind of reveals itself in various stages as I'm processing that information even when work is on the wall I have um, a piece I'm working on at the moment for Gypsy Maker mm. project uh, with the Romney Cultural and Arts Company and they haven't seen it yet but I'm reworking a piece that was important to me 10 years ago when I was at the knitting and stitching show um, because I identify with it in a different way. So I'll even rework my pieces. I've been known to burn pieces almost ceremonially. Rarely, no, it's just sheer frustration. I haven't got room in the loft and the bin is full. <laughs> but, you know, I'm prepared to let go of pieces because yeah. it's 
it's it's like when they're in an exhibition they're just resting in that space until i know what i'm doing with them next so don't hold on to them too tightly and i think it's very yeah yeah and it's interesting that you're going back and revisiting old works again like that's quite a thing to do like i think a lot of people Uh, would go oh it's done i'm i'm moving on yeah but I've got hundreds, I mean, above my head there, I've got hundreds of sketchbooks, and I think we go through cycles of things, and we draw upon past experiences in order to move forward, if there is a thing. I mean, I'm very much in, in, the, in the basis that I'm having to live in the here and now, and I think make best use of each day. Mm. Um, but where I am is in a very different place. And so sometimes when you uncover these you know, things that are hidden in your house, that you probably have got many of them, Jamie, you know, they're hidden. Mm. you've got pieces that you've made that haven't sold or or you made them at that time and you've moved on. And somehow they start to kind of call back. They're calling back to me. You mm. know, I'll, I'll be looking for something for an exhibition and undo it. And I thought, oh, that's the wrong package. Actually, that's quite interesting. I wonder. So I'm prepared. To, I cut them up and redo them and work into them and see what they tell me again. Yeah. And you don't turn away from the work. Like sometimes this isn't this isn't the same. Right. But when I look back at. um early issues of my magazine I cringe a little bit and I wonder whether that's like an immaturity because I'm not willing I'm not at peace with it I'm not willing to own it you sound like you look back at your work with fondness and with a willingness to take it on board again oh I certainly have some cringy bits (laughs) I think we all do I mean art isn't always art is built on failure isn't that the old sailing it's not what it's saying it's not built on success it's built on the failures so there might be pieces i've never exhibited that i rework but it's i think it's i could kind of say to students occasionally when i'm working you've got to love your ugly bits (laughs) i think we all should do that as a method just in life yeah because we we have this i also think it's a railing against perfection i think in the digital age so much has become, you know, CAD design in 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 the creative industries, um, and it's you know I'm I'm not, I'm not um, against anything to do with digital technology, but I want it to work at my level. So at this level, where we're able to communicate, because I can't be where I'd like to be now. I can't be out traveling, which is very important to me. That's where I used to pick the things up of the world that I worked mm. with. You know, they would yeah. reflect the travels. But so I'm certainly not against technology. But I am for the handmade. And I think that using stitch and fan materials and honouring those um, fragments and fragile textiles of the past is incredibly important to me anyway. It's part of the process. They come with a history which a blank canvas doesn't come with. You have to imbue that with, with what you want to say if you've got a canvas. Where I have to have a dialogue. I've got no choice because it's there. Somebody's hands has already worked that piece of cloth. Yeah, it's literally like you're you're time traveling with your fingers, kind of, aren't you? You know, there'll be like there will that. be like residues yeah. and stuff, won't there? It's almost like you are touching people from the yeah. past in a sort. Of... I've often used that. I I think I used it in textile landscape. The idea that um, I'm in a liminal place. I'm in. A, I mean, I always feel I'm in in, in between worlds. I mean, as a I trained in painting, so it's that hybrid hybrid status which i actually i don't like the word comfortable many people feel uncomfortable they want to know certainty all the time where they are where i thrive on that not knowing i you know it's when i get in a situation that's sometimes a little bit can you know can be like that the daily chores i now need to do with a caring responsibility i have to find means to to 
engage that side of uncertainty in myself in order to stimulate my creativity. Yeah, I read, um, I like me old business books and all those sorts of things. And there's a guy called Seth Godin, who did a book called The Icarus Deception. And the idea is that, you know, we get told that Icarus flew too far close to the sun and he failed, you know, and but he's saying that's not what you should do. He said, if you're in that position where you feel anxious and nervous and tension and like your lizard brain is shouting at you, telling you you're going to fail, that's when you're the most alive because you're pushing at those boundaries. Now, it sounds like that's the same thing that you're kind of talking about, that uncertainty. Yeah, and I kind of try to drive my students into that place on my yeah. courses as well. Because it's only when you get to that stage that I believe you can move on with your work. Mm. Because otherwise you're just doing what you already know. I've tried to do it in a supportive and safe environment. But to say it's okay to do that. It's okay not to know where the thing is going. It's okay to... The the questions you ask are really more important than, than the final outcome. Because... You need to find, I hate the word journey, but you need to travel that journey. You need to find a new that path. You need to yeah. excavate that your, your new way. You know, all of these terminologies I'm using are about discovery, aren't they? Yeah, 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 very much. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And you haven't used the word archaeology yet, but I feel there's a certain amount of that when you're unearthing things. Do you think yeah. the fact that you use found objects and things that people have given you is a shortcut towards uncertainty because you're already starting from an uncertain standpoint? I, I think that's true. and it, I mean, we we all think we know what textiles feel like because we wear them every day and, you know, we have an association with them. But that association can also be a connection to other people. But to then start to invest in that process of uncovering what that cloth is telling you, I think, is, in, is, is valuable. Well, it, it certainly is for me. Mm. And... Um, but it's, it also comes with that meeting point with the stuff I call the drawing stuff, the going out and observing the world as well. So there's always that element of that latent part of me that trained in painting and drawing and observation always is, comes into the work. So I suppose that I like the verb to, to draw as a verb as well. The fact that I'm drawing from many, from several yeah. different points of view. So there again is that viewpoint I you know as I said earlier I sit on the edge of textiles and painting but also I'd say his um in my own background because I have Romany heritage and working class you know I've I've got a degree so there's that kind of liminal meeting point there there Keir Starmer was only talking about that this morning on the radio with regard to middle class kids not being able to get above a certain threshold and I think I'm very fortunate to have been educated in the late 60s early 70s because you know, I think a lot of middle class kids did get on and defy what was their normal path in life and, and, and went to art colleges. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you got a fine art degree in, is it 83? Yeah, 83. At what Mason College of Art. Um, it's now University College of Arts. And what brought you to that in the first place? What was young Kaz? into young cars was always outside or upstairs because i grew up in a pub my dad was a painter and decorator sign writer as well right absolutely he was a yeah. sign writer he he, he mum would run the pub during the day and dad would be out um working uh, he worked with a, uh, a small you know painting and decorating firm early on and later worked for strangely enough jarrells and son which were book um printers in norwich yeah, that was his last job for the last 15 or 20 years of his life 
um, um, and you know, when I was eight years old, we moved out of the pub. But certainly, when you're young in in the, in the sixties, you couldn't be seen in the pub. So you're either outside, and I um, and Dad said he never worried about me being bored because I'll I'll always playing, doing, drawing, or whatever I was doing. So I never forgot that need for invention, if you like, because being bored was part of life then. You weren't yeah. always filling every minute of your time with everything. You had to find things, but I found things to do naturally mm. just always have been inquisitive and um i went to school and started to draw and i i kind of remembered that i was doing some drawing of it was an, an iris at the time i must have been in a junior school and the teachers had asked if i would do some drawing for for some some project or another i think it might have been a school little school catalog in our little primary school and um i, I was working with the last stubby pens and things i had um, these were the things dad would buy me at birthdays and Christmases, you know, money was tight. So, you know, I'm not, you know, that's just how things were. Mm. Um, um, and so they bought me a, a small art kit so I could do what I was doing and cleared it with mum and dad and said, she's doing a job for us. We wanted to do that. I don't think I'd be acceptable now, but <laughs> I don't think I ever stopped wanting to draw. So it's really not a case of, did I look out for it? I never stopped. Right. And then when you went to college and you studied fine art, was textiles on the agenda at all? There, no, or was it... I was on a right. I was on a drawing and painting course. Right. So, so what brought the textiles into it? Destroying a canvas I didn't like that I was compelled to work with as part of a, um, an art college project. Right. One of the, in our first year, and I, uh, um, I believe nobody in my uh, unknown to me, my mum knitted. I didn't find that out till later in life when she knitted me a cardigan. I'd never seen her pick up a needle in the <laughs> okay. entire time until I was, I was, must have been in my 50s. And I, she gave me this cardigan. I said, That's lovely. Where did you get that? I knitted it. And I went, What? <laughs> I'd, never, I, I, I'd never, I mean, I'd never seen it. I, I won't talk anything else about mum because it's another story, but it was just, Oh. I never ever saw my mother pick up a needle and thread, knit, or do anything when I was a child, or you know, until fifty, I was completely surprised. Right. Yeah. So, um, so nobody in my family, my uh, my grandmother, kind of distanced herself from that stuff. You know, she mm. tended to cook and look after the garden, and but she, nobody, I wasn't surrounded by textiles as a child, so I didn't have that. But I was surrounded by cartoons and things that dad painted on our walls and his sign writing jobs and his love of looking because he went to Norwich School of Art at 14 so he he had an eye he already had an eye but yeah. you know his career choices were very limited so and with the sign did, uh... writing have given you like an unconscious understanding of design I think so I mean I, I used to go and help him weekends um when we worked for some of our older neighbours, which obviously I'm an older neighbour now, but we'd help them, you know, they'd get their, their materials and we'd volunteer and help put up wallpaper and that. And the ends I'd take home and work on because they were brilliant for drawing on. So again, that's that kind of... Found objects. Found objects. So that kind of, you know, you could say it was embedded in me from early on, making use of what I had. Yeah, yeah. And then when you did your degree... Like so, textiles wasn't a thing for you, but I'm I'm interested to know whether textiles was even considered within the fine art. Context. We had Janice Jeffries as a course tutor, part time course tutor. Right. So, um, and she'd also studied and researched with Magdalena Abakanowicz and wow. um, the Polish weavers. 
Right. And when I first started to pull and, and work that together, that's when that another trigger went, alarm went off in my head and thought, well, I find this much more interesting than just working on the surface because it was a damn, well, the person who point, painted it probably thought it was lovely, but it, it was a painting left over from the previous student cohort. And that, you know, that was just a project reusing what other people had left and doing something with it. And, um, and I just found it much more engaging. And, and that really got me investigating what materials could do. But limited range, you know, early on, I studied uh, mostly paper and paper making. So for the first 15 to 20 years, most of my textile exploration were on mostly paper substrates. Right. And machine embroidery, has that, that has been a thing since the start? Um, probably towards the end and after I graduated, um, right. um, a lot of it was layered papers and hand stitch. Again, it was to do with what was accessible to me at the time and discovery. And, and also my involvement um, with being invited to do work with pe people like the Embroiderers Guild, etc. I began to, to be exposed to a different way of working. Um, and I just took what I wanted from that exchange by by people wanting to learn from me I also as a tutor always learn from the students as well mm. um but I always worked with a mechanical sewing machine my very first was a Frister and Rossman my second which is still sitting beside me today was an old vintage Benina 730 which I found in a skip at um an art college I was working at at the time and begged to, to take it home with me and they said yes if you can repair it you can have it <laughs> Which like I did. King Arthur pulling a sword out of a stone. Kaz pulls I, a banana out of a skip. That. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's it makes that mechanical drawing mark, but it's more than that. I do it with a machine. I mean, I love hand and machine stitch combined. It's strange. I'm often asked, do I hand or machine by many people? And I do both because they're like different types of mark. And I make them because of the mark they make, as much as I'll make a mark with a paintbrush or you know, there's gold paint on the piece behind me. Actually, it's not gold paint. It's foil from cigarette packets. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so right. again, there we go. It's sort yeah. Of an, uh, it's been a lifelong love-hate relationship. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you have? What? I mean, so this process has been going on a long time. I mean, have you been solely an artist? You're an artist and a teacher. And a writer. And a writer, of course, and a writer. An yeah, author, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but how many books have you got under your belt now? Five. Yeah, they're good. I like them. I like the, is it embroidering the everyday, the latest one? Yes, it is. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I call it my lockdown book, but it's, I think it's, it was, they're all, for different reasons, tough to write. Mm. Um, that was written in double quick time, um, right. but I was given the opportunity to extend that. They wanted it. Um, Batsford are fabulous to work with. So, mm. um, and, and our voices are, are left within the writing. But mm. yeah, um, yeah, it, it was hard to write for various reasons. Can you go into those reasons? Well, we were, um, I suppose we were all in lockdown so that ability to engage and meet with the artists had shifted mm. um and i knew that some of the things i was discovering about myself as part of the process of not being in that space which is valuable to me you know and it's still valuable to me i i, I mean i have been teaching 
via Zoom by invitation. I don't, I don't, you know, or, you know, I have done um, some courses with West Dean, which they've been very supportive in, in, in allowing, in encouraging me to do some Zoom courses with them. But I do them for invitation because, as you know, my partner had a stroke, so I need mm. to balance that time between care. I call it the care, clean, and create balance now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that almost is like that was the full stop on the end of the pandemic. So during the pandemic, and we're still in it, you know, we're still facing that, you know, mm. people are getting still getting sick. Um, that for me not to be in, in the world uh, was uh, uh, really tough. And I know it was tough for everybody. I'm not making any illusion. And I thought, well, if I, I thrived on the fact that I could come back to this house, but I could go out in the world. And I certainly did go out in the world. You know, it's my Romany. I think my Romany roots, I just ply my trade in a different way to my, my grandparents' family. Mm-hmm. But um, that the I'd had, a, I'd, I'd already had seeds for a book long, a few, you know, Batsford had said, what would I be interested in doing next? And I already had the seeds, but I said, I was going to take, time off I wasn't going to write for a few years I wanted to focus on my work but then the pandemic hit and it kind of discussions came between us and I said would you be prepared to do something and that's really how the book evolved but for that reason it kind of came out of that again out of uncertainty mm-hmm. which is where I thrive maybe bats would recognize that within my work that I best write you know even when I write I don't have the whole book planned out Right. I have I have the content of what I think I want to say in it, but I'm willing to shift and change rather like with my work as I write. I leave space for that. So 75 percent through the book is when I really begin to see how it really finally forms. But I allow flexibility because you never know what's around the corner. I do know that there's something that's driving inside of me when I write in the same way with my work, that kind of say a core like a dancer has a core i think all artists have that their own core and you Mm -hmm. allow you 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 should allow yourself to kind of go in different directions but somehow um being able to voice my thoughts and engage being very fortunate that artists have been involved with that writing as well is a privilege Mm -hmm. and i don't take it lightly i think it's incredibly important that it's that I engage with other artists as part of the process of writing so that people can see that we all respond to our tribes, if you like, that right. we all need a family that we belong to when we're creative. And this these can stimulate and develop ideas. Yeah, I think actually that's a really important point, isn't it? Because it's quite easy to feel like you're creating in isolation yeah. just naturally, particularly because it's quite an, it's not a team sport, is it, the stuff we do? It's like individual work. So it's quite easy to feel like you're the only person there, whereas actually there is a community. You just have to reach out and touch them. They're not kind of as far away as you feel. Yeah, and I think that um, that community is very supportive and presents presents their own challenges. I mean, I've certainly known that within the last... So, yeah, within the last year. So literally, the day the book was published, Derek had his stroke. So I, I couldn't go out and, you know, it's like, again that liminal place is one part of me wanted to celebrate and the other other part of me was just running around yeah thinking what the hell's going on yeah yeah can't imagine and yeah, um, one so of the I, things go on yeah extreme emotions on on that day 
yeah. for various reasons. One of the things I appreciated about the book, um, it felt sort of quite zen in as much as, you know, it's called Embroidering the Everyday. And to me, it's about paying attention to the small stuff, stopping and smelling the roses and just reinforcing that point, because I think that there's beauty to be found in the quiet moments. I see a lot of artists who do that, you know, they capture vignettes, they capture moments, and there's that documentary style of art that yeah. means that people capture the magic we might not realise is magic, but they do, and then that gives it some value. Yeah, and, and somehow, I think even when I've travelled, um, I always I made a comment when I was in Australia because I I I I make I make quick sketches when when I was in Australia, but I never really made any specific work about that experience of being in Australia. And I've, I I'm fortunate to have been there five or six times. And then one piece came out of it called "The Edges of Australia," and and but it's also again was to do with the commonality because I need to be of a place to be able to make something reflecting that you know I need to know where I fit in and so Australia will always feel alien to me but there were commonalities and that was what that piece was about the edges where we touch each other like the washing lines <laughs> or people having plants that were definitely I'd recognize in my own garden but particularly in Melbourne area and Victoria those those commonalities but were slightly different so it's where I saw the everyday things that I was familiar with, but in a different context that throws me. So, in, and again, in the Netherlands, I can find a connection. So I grew up in Norfolk. So there's a lot of similarities in, in, in the approaches, but I need to be of a place. So any, even when I'm traveling, I don't try to fly, you know, once I'm working in a place, I, I tend not to want to be going at 10 miles, at 100 miles an hour and looking at things. I'm quite happy to spend days in one place just so I become more familiar with it and get to know the feel of the place rather than flee rather than um i'm trying to think of the right word but the real sense of the place as opposed to just an awareness yeah you can understand why people are happy to find a mcdonald's because it's a place that they know is going to be the same and it's almost like you're standing on a steady rock in a river and now that you're on a steady rock you can go okay now I can have a look around the river because like it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something yeah. isn't it my yeah, structure my foundations there yeah maybe I'm looking for the familiar and unfamiliar places yeah so that then um, when you're in the familiar you're at peace to then face the uncertainty yeah, but and I would say that's what this house does for me. I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done that or had that experience. There are times, you know, when I was out in the world that I, I, I wanted to then come home. I was desperate to come home. Mm -hmm. And not due to anything that my hosts or anything. You get to a point where you just want to be back and doing things that weren't with other people for a while and yeah. vice versa. In some respects, that's I'm having to drive and find different ways to seek that engagement today, which is what I'm I'm doing. I, I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of accepting of what life throws at me. I've I've always has I always have been. I'm flexible on, in that way. Um, doesn't mean um, I get ang don't get angry at times, but I just think, well, that's my life. How do I handle what I have now? I mean, that's that's what you've said all along is the your capacity to manage the uncertainty and to process it so we go through fear don't we and we go through joy but we you don't want to let those things overwhelm you, you don't want to get them stop them getting in the way of progress and that's kind of and, what you're yeah. saying there yeah and also it's about harnessing it i've learned an awful lot in the last two years i 
I wouldn't say I deliberately go out and seek it as a, 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 a seek adversity or challenge as a place to learn but learning comes out of it whether you want for me it does anyway whether you want to or not so I engaged with it um finding out what are things naturally as the things start to settle here I began to become more aware of of how important vision is how important our sense of space is both physically and mentally through needing to work with physio with my partner but also it raised other sets of questions in my head about how we all look at the world. And I think embroidering, embroidering the everyday kind of set that seed to begin with. Mm. Because yeah. it was a shift to, I think it, I think for most of us, it was a huge shift in how we could be and how we could look at the world. Yeah. Yeah. I got quite lucky because we moved house literally a week before lockdown. So the new place we moved to, we didn't know what we were missing. And in a way that was an interesting buffer because we, yeah. we weren't missing out because this was all new. So the fact that it was very quiet and the only person, my best friends were Mr. and Mrs. Hermes, the people that delivered packages. It was kind of like, oh, that yeah. was all like, fine, you know, it didn't really have to work on that. Um, so you, yeah, so traveling then has been integral to you. And obviously you've said about Australia. You've also yeah. been to what, India a few times? Yeah, a couple of times I've been to India and I was due to be in India in the last, you know, I, could, I keep I look at the calendar and think of all of the things I'm continuing to cross off. You know, we all crossed off things during the pandemic and mm. I was beginning to book things in just yeah. as, you know, we had a stroke. And I there was a time where I thought I could start going out more into traveling. That's what you're told that things will go back to sort of normal once you've got a care package in place. Well, that is totally unrealistic i've accepted that i, I but i do work I, I i've gone to do some workshops in schools locally i mean locally i mean in kent i'm going to doing some training yeah. i'm got a I'm teaching my only live course this year is at westine in september um um i've um derek's part derek's brother is coming over flying over um so he has time with derek so i can do that because it i, I it is important to me to be out in the world and doing something where I'm physically in the same place with people and teaching now and again, yeah. I try to do that at least once a month, mm. um, whether it's local or with a group. But I think my ability at the moment to be able to go on long um, engagement trips of exhibitions, etc., um, is virtually um, impossible. Yeah. I managed to get to the, um, Antwerp last year for the launch of the shipping forecast right. um, and again that was due to a family member flying over Derek's family member my own family live in Norfolk and um, my, my I, I can't go into various reasons why but they're facing uh, their own difficulties which means it's very hard for them to come down for a few days yeah um, so um, but you know that that was so important. So if there's something really important, I that is a viable that is a viable option, but I can't depend on it. Yeah. When when you've done your traveling, you because you said that you know people have been giving you items and various things. I'm guessing when you go on your travels, you pick up a few bits and pieces here and there. I'm just wondering if if there's a way, like say a visit to India whether that visit in itself becomes like a found object that then you end up processing the how much your experience does. Yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, the experience does. I mean, uh, I'll give you an example of how two different cultural 
situations. India will be a good one to start with, and I'll go back to Antwerp. But in India, a few years ago, I was invited to do a project with a school, a girls' school, and I went for over for about four weeks. Some of it was funded by um, the Arts Council and the British Council to do this exchange. So I would be picking things up from the street, etc. But part of it was also research into my own cultural background, because Romani, the Ro Romani gypsies um, originally came from northwest India. So I was looking for the familiarity that I could see in the way that my grandmother had things in her house and the f images and photographs I had of her family in the Vardos, the caravans, with the paintings and the style of painting that I chose to use. Had, weren't very different to some of the paintings on the walls and on the textiles in northwest India. So mm -hmm. they, they kind of brought home the idea that the, that there's, we have far more in co common with each other, you, yeah. know, as, uh, you know, as people than we have as differences. You know, there'll be subtle differences, but we can trace our, our roots. And in fact, the Romani language um, 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 has its roots in the, in the Indian language. So there is that that. That, that connection. So I made pieces um, around that time. This was 20 odd years ago, and that went, went on um, tour called Traces. So there was that dialogue about the past, the connection I have with my family, and what I uncovered about it. So we come to today, and um, I don't know if you've seen anything. I can give you a link at the end of, of this um, project, the shipping forecast. Right. Um, they're all fragments of cloth. Some of them I picked up at Folkestone and Dover, but mm -hmm. many were given to me as I travelled to do work in Europe mostly. But I've got some from in, um, some from Australia and some from the USA. But I really made a point of just having these dis torn and distressed fragments that I hand stitched words that I'd picked up or headlines in the newspaper about migrants my, my, and where they're going to, where they're coming from, both positive and negative, but the whole issue of people moving around and wasn't certain why I was doing it. I just started to stitch these words. And um, when I went over to Antwerp, I lost a whole portfolio of work. I was having an interview for a major project, which was going to be and was exhibited at um Anna, with Anna Three at the at the church in the centre of Antwerp, city of Antwerp, which obviously is where the Cunard lines came from. Um, right. um, yeah, so hmm. where the migrants went from Antwerp, from Liverpool, from Ireland to the USA. So I'd visited the the museum. I stayed with friends, worked with the church, but I had this interview. But I'd lost the whole portfolio as a taker with never got it returned. So I'd lost a whole oh body of work, including yeah. these samples, apart from the one I had in my hands. The only thing I had for this interview with this fragment of cloth with these stitched words in, um, I, you know, I contacted them um, on my way in. Um, I think it was actually just, you know, I'm not going to go into detail, but it just seemed to me on reflection Many people who travel lose so much of value to them. They lose their family. They can only put things in a small bag to carry. They lose their connection to place. Nobody would 
be migrating or moving or getting on those boats if they weren't in real trouble in the first place. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't, you and I wouldn't make that choice to get on a boat no, no, in the middle no. of the sea like that. So, yeah. so that I'm not saying it's, it was an easy body of work and I have any answers, but I wanted to use it to raise questions in myself and just see what happened. Or that kind of nurturing thing that you have with cloth about saying we, we can still care, even if we're asking questions and some of the, the words I stitched were uncomfortable for people to see. Yeah. So I explained what I wanted to do and they had some images and I thought there's no way because he had lost the portfolio. I had nothing to show them. And I actually got the exhibition. Right. Um, yeah. And that for me was the power of a piece and fragment of cloth to communicate. Remember I said yeah. at the beginning how it can communicate. Mm. It may well be that um, it's also my ability to communicate. I kind of speak from here. I'm not um, an academic communicator. Mm. Um, I'm a, I trained in community arts, so I often things will come out of my mouth before I've thought about them, and they'll be completely, completely upset people. But <laughs> I just think we have to be honest in our communications. Yeah, and yeah. It's... Now go on. Yeah, so I came back. When I came back from that meeting, I stayed with one of the hosts, and um, um, I came back with some fragments of cloth they wanted to give to me. They said, you know they, they couldn't i mean i was panicked when i lost the portfolio yeah, yeah, but i yeah. wasn't as i wasn't kind of tearing my hair out somehow it kind of after i'd had that initial panic and things settled I said well you just got to move on from that there's nothing it could turn up it couldn't turn up because it's done because they they have this artist invited every an artist invited every year to fill this church and i fill the basement i mean um shipping forecast people can find a link to it on my yeah yeah yeah, page. yeah i'll put a link in the show. um um, but um, so you had you had these fragments or my small samples and some of my work work pieces so they could see how I worked in more detail completely lost and when we when we had the meeting I was actually talking about how we could engage with that community around them and they have something called the forensic sciences which isn't the same as us for working with people who had mental health problems so it's their way of working they had they had we had people so we had people working and engaged locally to the church as well as some needlework groups and they produced work to go in this exhibition because so i said i wanted it to be about an engagement with people because the whole thing was about that interrelationship mm. um working with people and and talk and using fragments that reflected that migrant story um, and um, but I also had pieces from all over the world because I'd invited people because we're in pandemic. I'd invited people to send in a fragment of cloth with something stitched onto it, which was about what they valued and what they missed. And that whole concept of something you valued and missed actually came from a project I did with the Romani Cultural and Arts Company three months before the pandemic hit when I was talking then, still talking about migrants, mm. um, you know, that idea that what would you value enough to put into your rucksack if you had yeah. to move from your place of safe, uh, from your home? And what would you miss that, that you couldn't pack, that you left behind, like the roses or your grand, you know, all of those things. And that really yeah. started with, um, with a young man at our adult education centre who was coming to, to Esau Clark classes. And I sat down and chatted with him because he, he was waiting and was obviously upset. And I found out a little bit about his story. And what he missed was his grandmother's rose garden. 
so right. that you know cloth has this means to to touch people and i felt there is something here that also reflects my story you know i've been quite open about being romany in the last 15 20 years of romany heritage put it that way but i may not mm. have been as a child because it's a tough tough thing to, yeah. to admit to being in education you know it's still not easy um and strangely enough i think within the lockdown those words still had significance what do what did we miss about not being able to go out meet with friends and doing our normal normal daily mm. things yeah. and what did we value more because we were staying put what were we aware of more because people have people always you know they're looking forward to their holiday away aren't they each year yeah, I always thought it fascinating that there was that handmade resurgence, you know, people weren't able to casually consume things. and But this innate desire for stuff meant that people sort of started to realise they could make their own things again. Absolutely. And there was a lot of engagement. I mean, I was, I think I'm very, I, I was very proud of the creative industries during that time who just really got out there and did things voluntarily just to... I would say it's about the well-being people well-being isn't just about keeping fit it's about engagement with your intel it's about for me it's about intellectual challenge creative challenge and mm. physical challenge you know look that's what your well-being is all about as far as i'm concerned um and yeah. the heart of mine is the creative challenge but the intellectual challenge comes from these sort of discussions and we all need that yeah i always remember um the seven habits of highly effective people by stephen covey which when I first heard about it, I thought was the habits of seven highly effective people. And I was like, I wonder who those guys are. But, as an aside, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, the last habit is always sharpening the saw. And I think that's an interesting one. You know, if you're a successful woodcutter and you want to keep cutting wood, you've got to keep sharpening your saw. You've got to make sure that your tools you use are in good condition. And I think that's what that is, isn't it? It's just. Yeah. And, and, and not, not, yeah, I and mean, when you said earlier on about um, working with that uncertainty, I think that's part of that process. If you, mm. you know, how far can you push it? It's when a piece of work I get when I start to think, God, I don't know where it's going, or I'm a bit scared by it, or it's raising questions I don't know. Or I'm not so. That's when I get more excited about it, and yeah. sometimes want to throw it at the wall. Or, but that wouldn't yeah, do yeah. much damage. It's yeah. a piece of cloth, but you know, it'd be lovely if it's. So I was making a ceramic. I'd make a lovely resounding smack against the wall. I was going to say, considering you said that one of the first things that got you going was you knocked some paint onto a piece of fabric, like throwing something at a wall, I'd imagine is just part of your process as standard <laughs> these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But the other, the other thing I note is that you spend a lot of time looking for questions rather than answers. Yeah, I don't know why. I, yeah, that's that little girl in the garden at the pub all over again. Mm. You yeah. know, I remember um, with my granddad and sometimes with dad because I'd always... When Dad worked at Gerald's, instead I'd stay on at school because it was a quiet place for me to continue with my um, homework rather than home. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd walk down to Gerald's and we'd often walk home together. He had a lovely relationship with my dad. Um, but I always remember from very early on, I would, you know, I'd ask questions, but he always got us to look up at buildings and look around yeah. and ask questions. So I think 
that's been my life. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just an annoying person who just always asks questions because that's how it, how I am. You know, I never accept that there is one answer because it depends on your viewpoint. I mean, some things there might be is two and two, four, for example. Mm, mm. Yeah. But, you know, um, but um, that, that there's always another viewpoint. And I think that's being engaged as a community artist and as a, as, and involved with teaching has been a has given me a great deal of experience. I suppose experience. I don't have that need to ask questions rather than to always accept the answers you're given. You know, I'll always I listen to the news and think, mm, maybe there's another way. Yeah. I'm not always certain I know the way, but I always I'm always questioning. I think a similar analogy. Um, I was part of Milton Keynes Embroiderers Guild when I lived in Milton Keynes, and it was great for me because I got exposed to textile art that I wouldn't have sought to find. So, yeah. you know, uh, what is it, confirmation bias, when we often just look for stuff that we already agree with. I think we owe it to ourselves to do the opposite of that and go and get Absolutely. people to explain stuff that we haven't got the foggiest because it makes us a broader human being, I guess. Yeah, and I've always retained my interest in other art forms as well. So when I'm working on courses, I don't look at textile artists purely. You know, I teach drawing and painting at education, so I'm constantly exposed to... Um, that's that side of my training, if you like. So I'm constantly exposed to that. And I, I've been involved more recently in supporting um, the um, We Care project. I'm, 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 I've, it's a, I'm, I'm try, I, I can probably have details at a later date. In fact, I sent a parcel today from from the project, but it, it's in support of carers, but it's self-supporting because there isn't a lot of, and and they're it's they're engaging in a craftivists campaign mm. um, and are working alongside um domestic dusters right right right, right. yeah i know domestic with Vanessa dusters. Mark, yeah. Yeah? yeah 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 um so um i think that craftivism is in a way of asking questions and challenging authority through craft isn't it through yeah yeah yeah, yeah. S- yeah so... Sarah always says that it's a it's a way for people to challenge things comfortably it's like soft protest that kind of thing rather than like uh, placards yeah and sometimes it can be more effective because it creeps up on people because they realize what's happened you know um Katie from um the we care did she I hope she doesn't mind me re-quoting her sorry Katie um um said that um at one event, I think in Wales, people were hand stitching and the MP that had come to the event. So I'm not kind of saying what the event was, who the MP. So I'm not going to reveal any of that. Because <laughs> even funny. if I remembered the names. I <laughs> when she was aware of what was being stitched onto the um, pieces of cloth, it hit her. She realised mm that voice came through much more profoundly than just a protest. She thought she was going to a little craft event where people would be knitting, but then it, it kind of reached her here in her yeah. heart. Yeah. Um, and I think that is the underlying power of the needle and thread. And suffragettes knew that, suffragists knew that, Brenham Common knew that, you know, no, whether they consciously knew, but textiles and protest have always been together in some form or another. That's yeah. soft protest. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a curious one, isn't it? Because it does. I've had the same experience doing a project once with an MP who I won't name, but I always like to joke and say, you know, I could see his frozen cold heart start to melt ever so slightly. Thanks to the power of textiles. Yeah, um, yeah. So then, so you've done quite a lot of exhibiting yourself and then recently you've been in this joint exhibition with Rosie James. Yeah. Can you talk about that bit? Yeah, um, it's with, with Spatsford has got a gallery and um, they asked if I would exhibit. Um, normally it's for a week and I like Rosie. She doesn't live very far from me and our work is quite different. But I think mm. it, I think the way I think I could see possibilities. So I I contacted Rosie and the thing is, it was it was practical as much as it was the fact I like Rosie. It was the fact that if you had two people, you had two weeks and because of my current situation, I couldn't justify going up there one day to hang and go. I didn't have, I didn't have two days in a week that I could go yeah. up and hang and take down. So it stretched mm-hmm. the exhibition out. In fact, we had nearly three, mm. and we trundled over there with our with our um, trolleys. And the exhibition came out of my shopping trolley and Rosie's backpack. So this huge space was filled with the shipping forecast and her crowd cloud. And the reason it came back about so I felt that we were speaking about the movement of people mm-hmm. and that yeah. have those two together because when I talk about the shipping forecast which is this piece that has a word stitched on and faces my family symbolic of migrant people I didn't felt, feel I had the right of taking photographs and putting the, those photographs on the, on on the cloth of people I didn't know so it became symbolic of those people and Rosa's, Rosa's, Rosie's beautiful line drawings of the crowds coming out of London Bridge Station. Um, they're, they, they're moving with purpose, one to work, migrating every day to work, if you like, backwards and forwards mm. on the train. And mine, mine reflecting people moving across continents for necessity. Yeah. And, and often they could pass each other in the street. And I know from working with a homeless charity and, and sometimes our own reaction that you can walk past and and not see people mm. you know we, we choose and we thought it would be an interesting juxtaposition and I mm-hmm. was really we were gradually when we were hanging the exhibition as that's what I love about the textiles is that they we we put one piece up then another and they start to have a dialogue they were talking to each other <laughs> so they were into you know we were keen that they were in, interspaced with each other in that space you could see through some of Rosie's sheer fabric to my semi-sheer pieces where the light came through. Um, so I always think that when I exhibit, when I engage with artists as respect as respected as Rosie, that we share that space. We 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 had, you know, we we had chats about what worked and what didn't work. That's pretty normal. But it, you know, good friend and colleague able to do that. But it really worked well. We were pleased to hang this exhibition there but also what it does for me by seeing my work in different spaces especially whether it's on the wall or in a different venue because it went from a church basement that looked like the I, I felt had the feeling of the line the base the workings of the basement of a big liner you know all mm-hmm. the pipes in the basement where that yeah. originally was shown to a gallery in Ireland where it had a huge window so the light was coming through that when textiles hang in a place, they have this ability, though that the core of what they're saying is still there, 
to interrelate with that space like they interrelate with us when we wear them. So my my cardigan would look completely different on somebody else. And I think that's, for me, a positive added value of textiles in a, in a gallery space is mm. that they actually interact with that environment in the way that they have historically always interacted with us, whether they're in our homes or on our bodies. Yeah, yeah. You and know, then the interactivity is a thing, isn't it? That speaks to what you were saying about being able to touch it before. I was thinking yeah. about I did um, the Stitch Your Story installation, which we had in Blackburn Cathedral. That was and the fabulous. funny thing, yeah, and it was thank you. It was um, just the the thing that was interesting is the church, the cathedral itself. You wouldn't think would do much, but it just just like the subtle air movement just in this fast space was enough to always keep these little dangly things just twisting and turning, you know, and it just kept the whole thing alive. Well, I had I had an installation called Trees, which I I was part of the Art Textiles. I belong to a group called Art Textiles Made in Britain. And, and just a little push here, we're, we're exhibiting at the Knitting and Stitching Show this year. Yep. Awesome. So I'll have some pieces. Um, our title is Illuminate, and I'll have some pieces there reflected the theme Glimmer. Um, but... Um, when we're when you're working, I'm going off my train of thought now. This is normal. This is Kara's brain. I'm sorry about that, Jamie. <laughs> no, no, you're no, right, no, you're no. Right. This is Kara's brain. Yeah. So when I had this former piece, trees in in exhibition, it, it was for, it was originally the knitting and stitching show, but it went to this cathedral. That was in the upper part of the cathedral. So I had um, shipping forecast in the basement and several signature pieces in in the in the church itself. Sorry, not a cathedral. It felt like a cathedral. It's a modern building beautiful beautiful modern building with stained glass um so they were hanging there and they were not far from the organ so people would move around and it would move but when the organ played they just span spun around <laughs> yeah. gently Excellent. moved like trees yeah. would uh, yeah. it was lovely that's what i meant that the cloth because it's not held tightly to a frame has yeah. this possibility of movement and that's what i like you know a couple of times in my career when i've made commissions people say well wouldn't it look tidier if you stretched it on a frame? And I thought, I don't want it to be tidy. I want it to reach out. You know, so yeah. you've got this thing about, you know, you need to remove yourself from the tyranny of those edges. You, it needs to interact. Yeah, yeah. And then I was interested because, you know, when you exhibit by yourself, it's one thing. When you exhibit as part of a big group, there's a lot of compromises you make. But then it's interesting when you just exhibit with one other person, like you say, and there's a dialogue and there's like a relationship that unfolds. So it was really interesting to hear you speak to that. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of a lot. I would say it was it was quite a quick decision. It hadn't been something we'd planned. And I know Rosie's crowd cloud hadn't been seen for some time, but but we... We, we immediately when we got into the space I knew I was going to put the shipping forecast and I didn't know what she wanted to exhibit and, and she just said I'd like to put crowd cloud with it and and that's just how it went we had a few other pieces that kind of related to the theme of travel and mm. migration um so um um from so that was really relevant but it was really lovely to see our work together um, and I'm going to try to seize as many opportunities like that as I can. You know, the, the fact that I have been able to exhibit in the last two years has been down to my partners. I, I mean, I've got an exhibit. This shipping forecast goes up to Scotland um, in August um, in, on the invitation of Craft Scotland. And we're doing everything via Zoom. And I had thought that I would be able to go up to see it, but that's not going to happen. 
for mm. various reasons. And not only that, not least of all, because trying to get anywhere in the summer when people are on holiday, so there's a shortage of carers. So that means I can't get enough cover to even manage a few days off, yeah. you know, um, and I can't rely on that. Um, but that, I accept it. I mean, I exhibited in Ireland. Um, an exhibition was planned before Derek had his stroke. And Rob, who runs the gallery, um, put the work up with his team. We were via Zoom. I did a meet the artist via Zoom to a whole gallery of people. So, you know, that's one thing the pandemic has taught me. Um, I don't know if I'd have been able to have done it before the pandemic. Having this yeah. interaction, it's it has its value. Jamie it's mm. you know when your choices become limited you make the best choice you can that suits you suits the situation you're in that's how I see it and yeah. I've been very fortunate in my life that I've worked with a lot of people over the years and what my project partners the people I've worked with over the years have actually been very supportive of me over this period of time yeah yeah yeah. no that's amazing I was going to ask you yeah, I was going to ask you about the change with Derek and how whether you can feel that pulling your creativity in a different direction. Um, I would say 100% yes. Yeah. Is it too early to say what that is? Are you in the exploring the uncertainty phase? I'm kind of moving through that. I think for me, it was like I, I did a piece because I was it was very unusual for me to be here at home on my own that's never happened so you can imagine he's in hospital for 11 weeks mm. he's the person who's the homebody and I'm the person out traveling in the world so mm. I'm in this house apart from we were still in the pandemic so I could only go and see him for an hour every three or four days so right. yeah? yeah so I'm in this house on my own i kept up a couple of engagements but some some of it I couldn't anyway because of needing to be around at the hospital um and so it became a place where I had to work through a lot and what I did was turn to the needle again and to my yeah. sketchbook and it was the middle of late summer early autumn the lot to be done in the garden so the watcher in the garden had to become a gardener <laughs> and during the quiet times I'd sit and stitch the things I discovered in the garden I hadn't paid attention to so again it's that paying attention to the overlooked because yeah. that was his domain he loved he loves and still loves gardening he gets out and waters when he can um, but I do the heavy work but simple things and I think that's what I started to do much the same I did with the shipping forecast for a very different reason his first words were when I was talking, I couldn't find a WD-40 because a, a lock had jammed and a gate and I needed to get the gate between my neighbour and myself open. They've been incredibly supportive, but I couldn't get the lock undone. And I, I, you, you go and you visit someone for an hour and at the first week or so, he was not communicating at, at all. You know, um, you just talk, you just talk. Mm. And I just, I just said, you know, I still can't find a W. And he suddenly replied, it's in in the cupboard above the toilet where it's always kept. And I thought, Derek's still there. Amazing. So his communication was there. He, what he has, this is why I've been playing around with things to do with how the brain works. He has um, the visual version of aspasia. So he's a maker. He's a sculptor. He built, he built a lot of the things in this house. 
Mm -hmm. So his eyes, his eyes, eyes function perfectly, but his brain doesn't pick up the signals. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So he's improving, but mm. he will. He, we're aging as part of our lives. There are things that are happening to me. You know, I'm, I still cycle. I still walk, but it takes me longer to do things. I have to consider things more. You know, you'll find it happens to you, James. Oh, God, not, I've, yeah. I'm starting to see a need for yoga already. You know, <laughs> I'm there. Oh, I'm I don't know if I've ever got that far yet. But, you know, I do. It, it, it's not, you know, trying to get out to do that is harder for me. Even doing that is harder for me now. Yeah. You know, I go out for two or three hours and I've, it's, it, I have an app on my phone. If I'm going for a walk, I can check he's okay. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, so it's those sort of things. So I have three hours respite where I don't have to even look at the app. Somebody comes in and I get that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm learning to trust that I can go out for a couple of hours or have someone coming in for an hour. And if things happen, they happen. It's not easy, but they're going to happen if I'm here or not. Yeah, I guess um, there's some... No, go on. Sorry. So it, it, it was about me trying to understand how I, I also needed to slow down for him. Because he were, he needs to go at a slower pace. Mm. So I needed to slow down in order to work, particularly the first year, and then when he broke his hip again, but needing to work at his level, work with his work with his physio on his therapy, although not all the time. He didn't want me to be doing that because the physios were trained and I'm just cast, so I had to, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. But the, but you know, it's been a revelation. The fact he's up walking with a quad stick. Not far, but he's walking is, a, is is to me a small miracle. Yeah, yeah definitely. And of definitely. his determination. Yeah. And it's nice that you've been able to keep your creativity going as well, though. You know, for a lot of people, I think it might just knock things, you know, completely on hold. But it's good that you've been able to maintain the flow, even if it's a diminished, slower flow. Yeah, I think it, I think I was determined to do that. I don't know why. Maybe it's that madness in me. But I felt if I if I don't keep that part of me going what good am I going to be here I have to do something for myself I, it's harder I admit mm. it's a lot lot harder but I need to have something that engages my brain differently to the care role because otherwise I can't do the care role yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and maybe one thing helps the other thing helps the other thing kind of yeah and I don't think it's good for him either I think he you know I I don't know I, I I've had the conversations sometimes but it's also often with friends. It must he it must be hard for him to see that the effect that that's had is, a, is it does affects both of us. Yeah, yeah, um, it adds an extra layer, doesn't it? Of you know, he might you can feel guilty enough when you're immobilized, can't you? I broke my ankle once. It's that same thing, but when it starts to have a wider impact, it just gives you extra layers of guilt if you want it, doesn't it? But at the same time, I've also recognised, you know, although that is tough, the, I'm not, I, don't, I, want, I have to put this across clearly. I've used it as a learning experience and that's fed into my work. Mm -hmm. I think it would have fed into my work because that's the way I work normally. It's, as you said right at the beginning, I use the narratives within the cloth that I find to tell stories. Yeah. And I, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me whether the person who sees my work gets my story when it's out in the public domain it's what stories they take away from it what they have 
And maybe this need to tell stories is embedded in my, the roots of my history because the Romani culture has always been about the narrative history, spoken history. Mm. Yeah, because those you are know, the things you can take with you, aren't they? They are the things you can take with you. And the familiarity again coming through. So what I, what I'm what's happening to me is is my experience but it, what what we're going through isn't unique to me only yeah. i know that so yeah. as an artist i want to say i want to use what i feel and know i've always done that in my work because that's my voice and i'm not going to be quiet about what's happening because, no 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 you know that that and I really don't. It sounds awful. I care about, I care that people have their own voice and they can come and engage with work. But what they think about my work no longer matters to me anymore. I do what I want because I want to do it. But you have the faith that people can use your work as a tool for their own understanding, because that is also something you've mentioned before. You know, they can yeah, triangulate the their yeah. positions by looking at what you're saying. Yeah. And also within working with alongside them, I don't I tend not to think about workshops when I'm teaching. I, you know, I say workshops. I think it's about. Trying to share what it is to be creative is more important to me than this material materials we're working with and what we do with them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's about sharing that this is what that create creativity is about and I can't teach anyone to be creative nobody can do that but through engaging with them in a workshop play in a place of work with, where, where workshops can happen and using the tools of teaching and engaging and making I can open up those possibilities for them to engage with their own creativity and that's really fundamentally important to me that through learning a technique you might go beyond that technique and ask and, and not want to know how to do something but the why to do something is more important why are you doing it what's it yeah. for so i i think in textile landscape i close with that idea that my work is all about the why to not the how to yeah yeah no i think that's brilliant i think that's good that's something we should all take away really yeah um, and, and and that perfection is is immaterial you know i it, it, and in the materials too you know um I don't want we don't live in a perfect world and imperfection in what I find is what I want to celebrate yeah we have a little postcard up in our kitchen that Mary found somewhere but I quite like it because it means the girls get to see it a lot and it says you're meant to be real not meant to be perfect absolutely I think that's a great postcard you'll have to send me a picture of that yeah, I remind yeah, myself because I, I have to remind myself that with all these balls I'm still juggling in different ways that you try to do the best you can, but you that's all you can do because you are human and and you're not you're not perfect. And there is always some way you can move on. Did this become a talk about philosophy? I think no, no, no. I love that. it. I love it. This always goes this way. Do you have a favorite album? Do I have a favorite album? Um, don't know if I necessarily have a favorite album, but I am partial to the Kinks. Uh huh. And and my but I do have a favourite song. I have two. Am I allowed yeah. two? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Lark Ascending. Oh, nice. Thomas Tallis and all that. Yeah, Tom. 
uh, and no. then no, it's not no. Thomas Tallis. No, it's Vaughan, isn't it? Vaughan, Vaughan Williams. Williams. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he 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 based a lot of his music on studying folk music. Right. Yeah. So Lark mm. Ascending and um, Blackbird Beatles. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So good shouts. Both bird yeah. related as well. Pardon? They're both bird related as well. Yeah, I don't think that was necessarily it, but that yeah, yeah, it's strange. <laughs> How do you feel I just like the, the sentiment in that, but I'm kind of too eclectic in my music choice to have a singular album that mm. I would always say that's my favourite album. Um, do you listen to anything while you're working? Sometimes, sometimes. Less so now. If I'm it depends on what I'm doing. Um if I'm doing some mark making, I might listen to music. Occasionally, I used to listen when I was stitching downstairs, less so now occasionally I do. It depends on Derek's hearing, depending on how comfortable he is, because I want to sit with Derek sometimes, and too much disruption or distraction is hard for him to then focus. You need to, when you often you need to focus on one thing at a time with the strokes. So if he's sometimes eating or, or moving, if I, I can't speak, too much if he's walking in an area he's not familiar with for example so if we manage to go out for a tea or a coffee get you know get a taxi and go somewhere he needs to walk concentrated because a distraction mm. can mean a fall yeah it has do to you, be totally focused yeah do you talk to your work while you're making it yeah. i feel like you might do yeah <laughs> do, do you jamie do you uh well i mean re rarely do i do some work uh probably probably casually swearing when it starts to go a bit wrong yeah That's yeah i do thing. i often do i you know um yeah sounds i'm like i am it sounds like i'm a bit mad but yeah no I, no I no do. i can see that because you you've already said you're communicating with it through your fingers and stuff i can imagine you talking to it as though it's you know a person and of you know a being you're working with or whatever that makes yeah sense. yeah i like that they they are i think i think that is in any artist's hands because be. you um you're kind of making something anew aren't you so mm. even if there are from found materials so yeah yeah you're yeah. nurturing something into nurturing. life aren't you uh do you have a favorite film um yes and um um oh oh my what again that's that is Kara's brain you'll probably no, able to tell right. me it will, it will come to me um do you want to do favorite book and then we can come back to favorite film might unlock it it could might unlock it it's a black and white i think it is a black and white film it got scott gregory peck in defending a young black boy you oh 12 not 12 angry men no no uh what's the other one to kill a mockingbird yes that's it to kill a mockingbird sorry what no, you're so right. another bloody sorry another bird <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> no, that's true Wow. There's something explicit that well, remember what I said at the beginning of this about those three <laughs> bodies of work which suddenly yes, yeah. And That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the favourite film is the colour purple. Okay. Sorry, uh, is that the favourite favorite, book? No, that's a second favourite, sorry. Okay. Yeah, that yeah, and yeah. colour purple. Right. Um and a favourite book sounds really strange, but it'll always be close to my heart because it's the first novel I read and it's still there is Black Beauty. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Not Blackbird Beauty. No. Just Black Beauty. Just, <laughs> just Black Beauty. But I read yeah, all. Yeah. The, I read all the time, so I could have hundreds in that list. I mean, you do you have, like fiction? 
Um, I do like, I also like um, biographies. I, re I read fiction for leisure. So I like Hundreds and thou Thousands and Clay Wick, which are by um, a Canadian painter. I'll have to fetch the book to get her her, her name, Emily mm. Carr. Emily Carr. She's right. a Canadian painter. So I love Hundreds and Thousands and Clay Wick, yeah. Okay. And then my last question is, what's the most interesting thing that nobody knows about you? Well, how can I say what's interesting? What's the most, because I'm probably too exposed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the most interesting thing that nobody knows about me? Because even though they've now discovered that I've enjoyed, I'm, I find gardening therapeutic because it's the sure physical aspect of it. Um, I mean, you might have laid your soul out so much. So you're, because the thing is, is you're at this, I, point of uncertainty you're at the creative edge all the time so you're overexposed you might say because you don't get the chance to hide stuff away when you're playing in that ballpark no and so. probably I choose not to because maybe it's about that communication that I'm just like everybody else I, I do I don't share everything but you know I had to think twice about how much I shared about what Derek was going through or, you know, so I don't post photos or things necessarily overly post what's happening here, but mm. I do talk about it because I think that's giving voice to mo a lot of other stroke survivors and carers. So again, that connects to me having a voice and using it wisely. So, um, there's a balance to be found, I think, between talking about stuff and then glamorizing stuff. I mean, social media makes it difficult to talk about things that are meaningful and find that point where you're not showing off about it. Do you know, like so many people do like virtue signaling and that kind of thing. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's quite hard to be sincere in the right kind of way because Facebook just amplifies all things in the wrong direction. Yeah. And the, and that can also be taken away from you anyway, through Facebook and overshare, you know? Yeah. yeah I, I, I think, yeah, I suppose that the, um, if the one thing that probably people, they, they, a lot of people may or may not know that I have restricted vision. Oh. Did you not know that? No, that's interesting. I'm blind, virtually blind in my left eye, lazy eye, and I have a narrow field of view. So I literally, nobody can see this because this is not, you're not going to see. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that point, I can't, I'm just, if I'm looking, I'm looking at you, at yeah. the moment, Jamie, and I can't yeah. see my hand moving there. Oh, wow. Because you said you said that you, some people have got a third eye. You said you rely on your second eye a bit, and I was like, "What?" But that's what you're talking about there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And 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 my right eye, although I can see detail and see quite far, I I don't have a wide field of view. So as soon as I move my hands, that says that my both of my hands looking straight at you are now out of my eyesight. All right. You wow. can't see them because I'm off the screen there, aren't I? Yeah. In the little box, but more or less, that little box is my eyesight view. So it's also surprisingly easy to creep up behind you and say "boo." Yeah, that's that's the one thing and people do. In fact, that probably is. Um, when I'm in art class, I've, I actually warn my students: if you're carrying a, if I'm carrying a drawing board or you're carrying a drawing board, don't come behind me. But yeah, that probably is. People could easily and um, when we when we were out walking it was always Derek who used to on that side would suddenly put his arm in front of me because I wouldn't have seen a car coming so I right. now have to be doubly doubly careful because I'm now yeah. his eyes when he's out I always stand on 
his left. So my right is on his left. So I've still got a blind left because that's the side he's weak on and he can't see from when we're out. So that's where people could walk into him because they, right. people tend not to, you know, kiddies playing, families chatting, yeah, people yeah, yeah. looking at that, people looking at our mobile phone while they're walking. Don't are not aware of other people on the play on the pavement. So I no, I'm mindful of that so he doesn't get knocked because he wants to walk when he can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that right, that yeah. may be the one thing that yeah, I'm I have restricted vision and it's easy to come up and boom and people don't necessarily do it, but I do jump quite <laughs> frequently and when I'm in a working situation, I will jump quite frequently if somebody suddenly comes up behind me quietly because I'm not aware they're there. It's fascinating because you've got restricted vision but seemingly unrestricted creative vision. Oh, oh, that's a that's a there you go. nice thing. Maybe I have. There are always restrictions. We always set restrictions. If I had unrestricted, I'd be working in all mediums, maybe. No, no, no. But I love it because, it, like, it's it's been really interesting because you, like you say, there's this uncertainty field, the edge of creativity and stuff, and you've been in that space for a long time that you're quite hardy to it, and yet it's still quite exciting. And I think that's what makes it fun because the minute we start getting a bit numb to those things, that's when we need to change it up. But it seems well, like you found some secret yeah, sauce. Yeah, I think a popular word in today's culture is the term resilience. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, my life has always been about movement and change because that's the way of, I think it's a life of most artists. You, you, you're not in a job that's got steady income. You're not necessarily going to the same place of work each day. You know, you're, you're striving, you're exhibiting, you're working all over the place. And I think that's what makes many artists, not just me, who we are today, and creative people and musicians, anybody who are actually using their skills to work independently and creatively become incredibly flexible in the way I, I believe that fundamentally. And I think it's an incredible value to pass on to the next generation. Oh God, we're going back to philosophy and, and moral <laughs> I can't well get away being. From it. Can't get away from it. Can't no, well, I suppose it. I've lived that in my life, so that's uh, how I've thought and worked. It's part imbued into the way I work. That's amazing. Well, listen, Kaz, uh, thanks for your time. So, if people want to find you online, where's the best place to go? I have a website which is simply casholmes.co.uk, um, and I have Google and Facebook, all the usual places. But maybe do a trawl because you might be surprised where you find me. I, I sometimes am when I do decide I'm going to do a trawl. Um, and um, things that maybe are like slightly untrue or. Um, there is a brilliant there's a brilliant interview with you uh, on the textile artist website as well. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. 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 I enjoyed Shout that interview. That's that was a good interview. But yeah. Second best interview you've ever had, I heard. All oh, right. <laughs> this is going to be the first. Is it? <laughs> we'll have to see. Listen, it's been a total pleasure. Uh, so uh, thanks for having a needle exchange with me. And thank you for inviting me. I'll get your needles out and keep stitching. Don't give up on your stitching, Jamie. Perfect. Thanks for joining me on another needle exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit forward slash needle exchange. See you next time.
thanks for joining me on another needle exchange i hope you enjoyed the show i'd love to hear from you so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange that's n-w-e-d-l dot exchange with any thoughts comments or feedback and if you want to keep up with all the news sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange see you next time